The Nuts and Bolts of Writing, Season Two, a podcast where we talk about literature, the ins and outs of writing, and how to actually start writing. Hey everyone, this is Tete Depunk, one of the co-hosts of the Nuts and Bolts of Writing. Today, I will be interviewing author and interviewer Brock Swenson. Who reached out to our podcast? Brock Swenson is the author of Ink by the Barrel: Secrets from Prolific Writers. He is also the interviewer for Creative Screenwriting Magazine, a publication dedicated since 1994 to educating and exploring the field of screenwriting and its creative minds at the helm. Additionally, Swenson also hosts the podcast Creative Principles, a podcast focused on the discussion of the creative principle and key figures in the creative world today. I've provided links to Creative Screenwriting Magazine and the Creative Principle podcast in the description. Throughout his career, Brock Swenson has gained an impressively thorough knowledge of the screenwriting world. He has had the opportunity to discuss in depth. The creative principles and know-how of the field with some of the best minds in the industry. Today, we have the fantastic opportunity to interview the interviewer of creative screenwriting and host of Creative Principle Podcast, Mr. Bronk Swenson. We're thrilled to have Mr. Swenson on our podcast today. Today, we have the fantastic opportunity to interview the interviewer of creative screenwriting and host of Creative Principles Podcast, Mr. Bronk Swenson. We're thrilled to have Mr. Swenson on our podcast today. So, Brock, if you'd like to、uh, introduce yourself,、uh, you know, by all means, go ahead and introduce yourself to our audience. Yeah, I've been kind of a writer interviewer for over a decade now.、I、started with creative screenwriting. I've also also been a screenwriter and、uh, trying to break in. I'm actually working on my first film now. Been in marketing for like ten years. So, kind of a variety of things, but I've always been more so. In the background, I've been a ghostwriter. I've been on marketing teams behind、uh, some some pretty famous personalities,、uh, but this is really the first time I'm I'm putting all this knowledge together in my first book, Ink by the Barrel, and trying to get out there and just encourage people to be prolific writers. That is that is absolutely fascinating, and that's something that's definitely needed, especially in、uh, this day and age with. You know more of the growing field of how the screenwriting industry has changed and continues to to evolve. So that leads to our first question: How did you get into the field of creative screenwriting? I mean, to go way way back, like my family definitely talks in movie quotes. Like I grew up watching a ton of movies. I saw you know a lot of Hitchcock way too early, and some of that stuff. Just we we love those old films and. I went to school for screenwriting, but I'd say I almost just learned kind of a mild version of the craft in in college.、Uh, I kind of got the nerve with a friend to to go across country. We spent six weeks on the road. That's where I started doing some、uh, copywriting and some of that. And another friend got me a job working on set, doing some commercials and TV shows. The first one of the first jobs I ever had, I was actually in that. I like I'm on, I'm on the side. I feel like I'm not. I got cut out of it, but that. Really famous, like、um, the horse commercial for Budweiser was one of my first jobs, and then I was on the Guinness Book of Records doing some. Not on the show, I was kind of working on the show, but 
I always wanted to be a screenwriter. Uh, while I was out there, I answered a random Craigslist ad, and it happened to be Creative Screenwriting Magazine. And then I got to start talking to screenwriters. I've been doing that for like 10 years. So I've talked to people like Aaron Sorkin and Mel Brooks and Ethan Hawke and like over 400 writers, uh, both screenwriters, authors. And I'm also trying to get more creative people in the show. So I've talked to chefs and musicians and whoever I think might kind of pique an interest because I'm really obsessed with creativity and productivity and how you can, you know, I kind of see that as combining those means you're prolific and then doing that for a lifetime. That's, that's incredible, especially all the different figures that you've encountered on your journey. That's just absolutely stunning. Um, so during your journey, you know, what kind of particular challenges did you face in the industry? Well, I mean, you know, I've done a variety of things and, and something that I, I've kind of learned, I think a lot of people have a false belief that really just, you know, the best work will rise to the top. And I definitely think there's there's more to it than that now. That said, the, the far end of that, I don't really believe in gatekeepers. That's why I chose to self-publish. I'm actually making my first movie on my own and I'll sell it later. So I'm raising private money. I'm doing everything I can. I've kind of figured out like a unique way to make a documentary without having to fly around and, and, and things that make it cost so much. So whenever you see a gatekeeper and you shouldn't let anyone else tell you no, and you shouldn't tell yourself no. So I feel like there's, there's always different ways to go about the things you want to do. Um, so that's one of the biggest things that, that people kind of face and biggest hurdles. And within that, that, then within that, it's really just like mindset. Can you be consistent in what you want to do? Can you keep working even though you're in a long plateau and you feel like there's no growth there? That's actually one of the most, the most growth I think happens. So there's just a variety of things, but the, the end goal is just to kind of be prolific and keep writing. This is very, very good advice, especially considering, you know, more people seeking a more independent path, which would lead to more growth and variety. Um, how would you say that over the past 10 years, do you feel like screenwriting has changed a lot or do you feel like some things have stayed consistent? It feels like one of those odd things you hear more and more today of like a lot of things have stayed the same for hundreds of years and screenwriting is not that old, but a lot of things today have been the same for hundreds of years and they've changed rapidly in the last like 20 years. And I think screenwriting is definitely within that category. That's part of the reason for the writer's strike now is how do we handle AI? How do we ha handle unfair wages from streamers? So I think things are more complicated from a business sense, but in terms of the craft itself, the writing hasn't changed a lot. I mean, obviously the big difference in watching a movie today versus even like something from the seventies, there's a lot of slower starts. People expect you to kind of get into the story a little bit faster today. So I do advise people like, don't just read your icons. Don't just read Tarantino and Sorkin and people you love. Read the people and listen to those interviews of people who just broke in because they understand what the industry is looking for now, perhaps better than your, your favorite writer who's been around for 30 years. So you really need to see like a variety of great iconic scripts and then brand new scripts on the blacklist and people kind of breaking in today. This is very fascinating. Um, another thing I uh, wanted to ask, we were just touching on the topic um, as you touched with AI. Do you think that does AI as some purport threaten the agency and integrity of screenwriters today? Ironically, I mean, things could change in a decade from now. Who knows how fast it'll grow. But right now, from what I've seen, I don't see an exact one-to-one -one replacement. I don't think that's the case at all. 
Um, I think that let's look at like a procedural show. Some of your NYPD blues or ER and those are old shows I'm dating, but shows like that where every episode is kind of a very repetitious formula. So the AI or the studios might think that, well, it's good enough and good enough is really the problem. That's why we're seeing so many sequels today and so many movies that don't really make an impact. I can't tell you, like, I feel like uh, when I was growing up, Every week, there'd be some great movie to watch. And now it's like maybe once a quarter or even less than that, that something really like speaks to me. And it's because we're just doing a copy of a copy of a copy. So AI, AI is kind of this, I mean, a lot of writers would just call it plagiarism because it is taking from what's out there. I use it a little bit in some of the more repetitive task of writing, or I'll use it more like I'm pitching ideas to someone. I'll, it's more like I, I talk to AI a little bit because you have to, I think like, I don't think your job today will get replaced with AI. I think someone who uses AI might replace you though. Someone who understands how to talk to it and just get past all that blank page nonsense. Like you've got some loose idea. You can start asking this machine question and it's kind of like a really intelligent idiot because it could say all kinds of things. So it's really up to you to know how to use it. But I look at it more of like an intern that you might be working with as opposed to someone who's just going to take your job completely. Because whenever like, a great movie or series comes out and like changes the zeitgeist and everyone's talking about it. That's because it's original. It's from someone's like soul. It's from someone's like personal story and AI can't do that. Uh, it, it's just kind of copying things that, that it thinks is best. This, um, this is a very, how do I say a very sound approach to that. You know, there's a lot of people who are divided on the fence um, but your approach is definitely very well balanced and, you know, something to be seen as, you know, sort of like a, a tool to help you out of tight spots, so to speak. Um, I did uh, this. So this leads to another question. So this was something you'd also touched briefly. So um, in your view, what were the factors that have led to the recent strike from the Writers Guild of America? And do you feel like these factors have been present for a long time standing or has it just been kind of from the influx of streaming and how the industry has changed? It's kind of, I would say it's more about the streaming and almost like the streaming was the issue. And then the AI debate kind of came on later about what was happening. And this, the last one wasn't that long ago, maybe 10 or 12 years ago. Uh, one movie that kind of stands out to me, Quantum of Solace, was Daniel Craig's second James Bond movie. Pretty solid movie, but the worst of the ones he did, at least in my opinion, is because they didn't finish the script when they went to go make it. The writers went on strike and the studios pushed for it to go ahead and get made to make that money and uh, do that sort of thing. And, and usually we see it, it's more obvious. The writers are going to strike. The Tonight Show is canceled. SNL is canceled. Some of these other things are less obvious that are happening. But it's kind of a repetition of what happened with Napster back in the day and musicians. And we're moving to this other platform and they are making less money. And the writers are really like, it's particularly overlooked, but the actors are having troubles with trouble with it too. It's not like it's just them. And then it's like, all right, it's kind of this perfect storm. And then we throw AI on top of that. So that's kind of why it's, I think, happening or going on longer than it normally would. It's very true. Um so you've uh, so you've made an observation that you know over the past 30 40 years screenwriting has changed or at least the way it's told and how you communicate through say this medium of movies let's say what do you think has contributed to that do you think that's technology societal change or maybe a combination of different factors yeah, it's probably a variety and it's it's hard to say it's not our own fault you know like we 
and I love all the Marvel films, but when the studio saw how much they made on those, right? So like famously Kevin Feige and the team who created that, they came up with, they saw that sequels were doing better. So how can we make a way to create a series of 20 movies that are basically all sequels, even though, you know, it's not Iron Man 1, 2, 3 necessarily as much as like Iron Man's weaving in and out. So that's just like the biggest example. But the more they do that, the more money they can make. So the more money you're making, they're just not taking a risk. I feel like there should be some kind of like equal equal opportunity for independent films. Like why would you spend, um, you know, a million or two dollars on something that might break even where you can just throw more money into like something that's loosely even associated with Marvel and it's like guaranteed to get a, a pretty mass audience. So some of it's our fault for only going to see the blockbuster films, but you, I mean, some of that's the economy going up and down, but I just think a lot of people are not taking chances on films the way they used to. And we're starting to see some artists turn that around um, kind of famously recently that movie air that Matt Damon and Ben Affleck did. It's my understanding. I, I heard an, inf- an interview with Ben Affleck. They were talking about, they love the idea. They're obviously very comfortable at where they're at professionally. So they kind of the team behind that put their own money in to make it. And they went and sold it to a studio. They didn't ask the studio for money to make it. So that's a big difference. And they can go make the films they want. And then it got like a small release, like a couple thousand theaters and then went to Amazon. So there's a lot of complications with that where things, you know, used to come out and it would be three months later before you could see it, you know, on DVD or something like that. So I think some artists are going to stand up and make those good films, but there's only going to be a handful of them. Um, And I'm kind of using a similar model for the, the piece I'm working on that kind of same mindset of like, well, if you don't need them, you can make what you want and they can't change it and they can't make it this, you know, mass appeal type thing. Very true. Um, so speaking of, you had mentioned your work, are you at liberty to speak about that or share a bit about that? Yeah. yeah. I mean, it, it's, it's just me. So it's like, like I said, it's kind of what I want to do, but um, I interviewed a couple documentary filmmakers and I saw something really unique they were doing. They were basically like this, there was a movie on, it ended up being on ESPN about Bruce Lee And I noticed he wasn't using talking heads. So normally you shoot a documentary, you you cut to someone talking. um, And his was a creative reason. So he said, I didn't want to cut away from, you know, talking about Bruce Lee in 1975 and show us a couple of people that were very young and in shape talking about that time period. You cut to them today and they're like 90 years old. It kind of takes the viewer out of what story we're talking about. That was his creative idea about that. Then I saw another one about John Belushi and I said, well, if you can do these things with just archival footage and interviews, you don't really need to fly around. You don't have to fly around and, and set up places and shoot and talk to people and schedule all those things that are so complicated. You go from like a half million dollar budget to like, I would say less than 50 grand. And that's really just, you're going to have to pay a lawyer to confirm all your, everything should be fair use, but there's complications there. So you kind of, you narrow your budget way down. We cut it by like 90%. So the idea that I've always been kind of obsessed with kind of goes back to my love of film. It's the history of stunts in film. I think screenwriters and stunt performers are very often overlooked, but film kind of got its start that way. Buster Keaton, Harold Lloyd, Charlie Chaplin, these guys were kind of slapstick comedians who would fall around and do crazy stunts, um, mostly because it was visual in, in the silent film era. But how has that changed over time? How does that lead, like how does Charlie Chan or Charlie Chaplin influence Jackie Chan or Zoe Bell, the famous Australian stunt woman. How does that lead to John Wick and Keanu Reeves today? 
And a lot of people don't think about it. It's been a hundred years of stunts and there's still no stunt category in the Oscars. It's completely overlooked. They're just kind of ignored to some degree. So I really want to talk about the history of that. And it's kind of moved from like a, what I thought might be a two hour movie to an eight hour series. So that's something I'm working on now. That is absolutely remarkable. And, you know, you are right. Stunt, uh, that aspect of filmmaking is often overlooked, yet some of the most iconic scenes that we can think of from cinema, you know, rely on, you know, a lot of risk taking stunt, you know, yeah. whether that's like, uh, you know, Charlie Chaplin or, you know, whether we think about it uh, even today, would, would in your opinion, would you say today uh, stunts have changed like that field has changed because of the thing of, you know, visual effects, or do you feel like, that somehow has helped that aspect of filmmaking. It's changed some. So some things are a little safer. It's funny. You'll be talking to someone like I just interviewed a woman named Cheryl Lewis and I'll, I'll publish this on my podcast soon, but she's an expert in getting hit by cars, which is an odd thing to say, right? Cause if you get hit yeah. by the car the wrong way, you can get very hurt. Yes. And there's certain things, particularly getting hit by a car or rolling down stairs, you can't really fake it. So there's things they can do with wire work to make the impact less damaging and, and this and that, but it's still very much the way you think about it. So the name of my documentary is called Daredevil Society. That's kind of how I'm encapsulating all this. And it did start that way. It did start with big risk takers and there's evil Knievel and people that kind of eyeballed stuff and just went for it. But today it's something uh, Charlene Royer, another I've been talking to a lot of female stunt women recently. So Charlene Royer was telling me that, well, it has to be repeatable. That's what makes it a stunt. So you have to be able to do it, set it up, not get hurt, do it again. A lot of times when someone gets hurt, Amy Johnson told me she's the stunt woman for um, Scarlett Johansson and a lot of the a lot of the Marvel films. Um, she was telling me just like whenever you don't feel right about it, that's when you get hurt. You're doing something the fifth time and you're tired and, and some of that. So I think like it's a lot more conscious of that. I interviewed this other guy named um, Lash Lash Chartrand, who was one of the Ninja Turtles. He actually got shot on set on a Chuck Norris movie, like in real life. We hear this happen once in a while, but I think a lot of more safety precautions are being made. But every now and then, I mean, it's still dangerous no matter how careful we are. But I do think it's a lot more careful and, and planned out than it used to be. And then it's more, some of it's a budget issue. I mean, a John Wick movie is like, it's just one big fight. So they spend five or six months prepping where you might see a, a PG-13 action movie with uh, I, I feel like I keep being harsh on Liam Neeson, but he's gotten older. He's not as able to do those things. So they're not going to spend as much time prepping. And that's where the fights don't look as good. So you can tell when they're like making a great action movie, doing it the correct way. I think that's a big difference. Very true. Would you say that um, the styles and genres of films today, do you feel like they've certainly changed with how the action's portrayed? Like, would you say they're, like you had mentioned in the beginning, there's a lot more story to intake and we have to digest it a lot quicker as an audience. Do you think that's more challenging to a screenwriter or does that give them more opportunity to maybe build a more layered lore into that, that limited story they have to tell in a single movie? Some of it with the action, I'm always surprised by how little is written. Like you'll watch a Tarantino movie and there's a 10 minute fight and it might be three or four lines on the page. So one thing, like I talked to the writers of Into the Badlands, which was a like a Kung Fu series on AMC, 
every time you're writing an action scene or a fight scene, it does need to lead to something with character. So I think in that mind, in that mindset, it all kind of comes back to writing about character and it's not so much about the big explosions and stuff like that. Like if you don't have, if that's missing from your story, we know it as an audience, we can tell that like they didn't put the work in to figure out why the character is doing these things or why these things are happening or how that you know person, man or woman is developing throughout the film and the story. If that's not there, no matter how good the film is, like even John Wick has an interesting arc that kind of defines who he is. He's not just out there like fighting for no reason. Um, mm -hmm. So I think that is like the biggest thing about writing a screenplay. There needs to be some, you know, the plot's going to sell it, but the theme is what's going to connect with the audience. And that theme should connect to you as the writer as well. That's very true. And and this is, this is also leads to a, another interesting, uh, you know, idea. Do you feel like themes have, changed over the years like how we tie into themes with a like say particularly with film um I know there's been kind of a debate of like the different styles of like modernism versus postmodernism and now what they're calling uh like after postmodernism do you do you feel like there's been a a shift in that in the past maybe say 30 years like say from the 90s up until now with that or do you feel like it's just been a thing of technology and society and being more aware of issues that are going on. Yeah, there's definitely some of that there. I mean, James Cameron's whole Avatar series is about like the environment, right? I mean, the underlying theme, that's what the idea is. I think some things are always going to be, there's always going to be stories about fathers and sons, for example. Uh, there's a really weird, interesting change in Disney movies. If you watch all the original Disney cartoons, they had a pretty good worldview right and then like something changed and at the end of the film it went back to normal and that's how every one of those movies ends pretty much during that time and i think that's more of a conservative viewpoint when pixar came out a lot of the stories you can think of every pixar movie typically one being whatever it is saves the world in a way that things change for the better and that's a little bit more in the liberal point of view and not that there's right or wrong but i think it's more of like a, a independent minded versus like things used to be this certain way but it, it is interesting that it is like a massive shift in tone over like 30 years and then another 30 years and some people say there's just you know cycles so all those things anyway um but i think it it is an interesting idea and that's just part of like this zeitgeist thing that's hard to put your finger on sometimes like there's a there's i talk about my in my book a little bit about like elizabeth gilbert or, or rick rubin uh, both different types of creatives might say that if you don't pursue an idea that comes to you from the muse it'll go to someone else who will pursue it i don't know if it's necessarily magical so much as this intangible thing that's like on everyone's mind that people are kind of thinking about i feel like it's something like hidden in the hidden in everything that's happening or something around us and that's a that's a very that's how do i say very accurate observation you know especially uh you know as you pointed out i still remember as a kid watching all those original disney movies and you're right everything does go back to normal like normal was you know the kind of happy status quo but then compare that to pixar where usually the characters they've realized there's a problem the status quo is not what it should yeah. be they change it for the better and would would you say that that theme appears more in a lot of our storytelling nowadays or do you feel like that's being questioned and examined especially like with the influx of a lot of other series that are more ambiguous 
There's definitely a variety. I mean, it's kind of hard to say. And then that's like, I feel like at some point we stop thinking as much about what we like as far as like writers and more about what's going to connect with a mass appeal audience. And I think that like causes a lot of problems whenever you're writing something that's not personal to you. I think it's just going to be a big issue. So like, no matter what seems to be the trend, you need to think about what you care the most about. And this is true for all types of writers, but you know, I do kind of lean towards film more often. It's like most people in a lifetime, they'll probably watch, like there's millions of films. They'll watch maybe 5,000 in a lifetime. Of those 5,000, there's 10 or 20 that's their absolute hands down favorite. And like I have a writing partner for some of the horror movies that we write, no matter where we start or what we're, what crazy avenues we're going down, we talk about the same 10 movies over and over and over again. That's, that's what influenced us. That's like how you find your taste and who you are. And I think you might have to just write a few bad scripts or go down some bad paths to figure that out. It's like, well, this is really who I am. And it like took me a while to figure out what I'm obsessed about. Um, but I would say like the answer is within, not just examining what's already out there. That's very true. And this is very good advice, you know, for a lot of writers, you know, no matter what the field. Um, and you mentioned about, you know, writing scripts that maybe weren't the best, you know, you know, bad scripts or, you know, going down a path to kind of figure out where you want to go. Were there any in particular, like, say, in the beginning of your, you know, career journey that were not maybe your best or maybe they were kind of like, you know, the bad script that, you know, helped you how do I say, learn, learn what you were really about and what you were seeking to create? Yeah, there's one in particular that just got thrown away, basically. I feel like I carried this character around with me in college for probably two years and just thought about it all the time. And I was like, okay, this is time. And I, I think I wrote like a 120 page script in like three to seven days. It was a very short time period. And it was like complete garbage, but I had to get this out of my system. And I was mimicking like Judd Apatow, who was really, you know, famous with our, our generation at the time. This was probably 2007, like knocked up had come out and it just like, wasn't really me. And I do think you kind of have to like mimic some other voices to figure out your own voice and just start stripping things away. And then I ended up like, so I wrote a movie out of that, like 120 page movie and I let it sit for a bit and I came back to it. And I turned it into like a 50 page pilot episode or TV show. And it made a lot more sense. And like something about getting it out and then kind of like clearing and resetting and coming back to it later. But then I probably, I didn't really write another screenplay for a couple of years. And then like, I think things had just changed, you know, like some, some things about your life or your perspective change are really interesting. Cause I I'd been thinking about this a lot before. And I, I talked to this guy who had written a movie called spinning gold about his father, who was a pretty famous uh, music producer. He worked on the same script for 10 years. So when he started, he was 25 or something like that. And he worked on it for 10 years. And I said, well, how did it change over 10 years? He said, well, it's a good question. During that time period, I had one view of my father. Then I had children on my own. And then I had a completely different view of my father. And I think most people were right about, you know, the same age they're in. And hopefully you're evolving over time. That's even why you see, you know, kind of a far example is like, Look at like Adam Sandler movies. They're all about him being a single kind of tough guy and all these silly stories. Then he's got a little older. They're more about him like being a parent and there's some more serious roles. I think everyone should be growing over time. Even if you're still trying to break in, if you're, you're obsessed with an idea from when you were 20, you're going to be more and more disconnected with it, even though you're kind of obsessed with it over your lifetime. 
That's very true. That That's actually very good advice. You know, there's a lot of people that may want to, you know, cling on to an idea or concept or a theme. But like you said, as you know, people grow, uh, hopefully they grow and you become more distance with that. Do you do you feel that distance? Um, do you feel that kind of helps you gain a more clear perspective when you're trying to approach it again? Or do you feel like it alters it so much that perhaps that perspective of that theme that you have, it kind of becomes a different creature all on its own. could be a little bit of both. It probably depends like how much distance I would say. I even do that with little things I'm working on now. If I write, you know, um, if I want to get an article published somewhere, whenever I have the time, whenever there's not some crushing deadline I can write a first draft and then go away for a little while, or even like that same day, go hiking and come back to it somewhere the answers are kind of solving themselves like in your subconscious. So I think time is like almost always the answer. If it doesn't quite feel right, if you can just give a little bit of space between it, a lot, a lot of people talk about that. I, even most of the questions I ask are obsessed with productivity, but that rest is equally important to be productive at the next time when you're supposed to be productive. That's very, very good advice. And it's, it's a good perspective to have. And so this kind of, leads on to um, another uh, branch I uh, wanted to discuss. In your career, did you ever face setbacks? Like were there challenges and were there were those more of a personal thing you had to overcome or were those external factors maybe in the industry or a combination of both? I mean, constantly and, and like I still very much am because I'm still, I'm always curious in like new routes. Like I've always been obsessed with screenwriting, but I haven't really tried to pursue it. Meaning like I've written a couple of screenplays over time and I might send them off to three or four people that I know in the industry. But if I really want to like ensure that something get ma gets made, that's kind of what I'm doing now. So like I'm actually working with a screenwriting coach who's going to, who's kind of already taken me mentally further than I could take myself. Like he, the, the idea of working with a coach would be that what would take me five years to figure out after like beating myself up would you know, ideally I'd learned it from like six to 12 months with someone else like that. So then it's like more of a strategic approach. And I think just seeing someone, you know, who's done it. Cause the interesting thing is like, I've talked to 400 screenwriters or something like that, but I haven't talked to anyone who like I knew growing up who wasn't a screenwriter and now they are a screenwriter. So there's still like this, you have to kind of get bloody going through the wall. I think it's kind of the idea that it goes back to like, if you don't, it's hard to see yourself doing it if you've never seen anyone else doing it. So working with someone who is not pushing you from behind, but pulling you from forward, I think that that starts to shift your mind a little bit. So like I'm working on this movie, it's going to, it's something I'm going to make. I'm determined to make it. And I'm also writing some screenplays that are more in line with that same genre. So it's more of like preparing uh, multiple levels to kind of break in. And then I think when you start to make something like that, like writing this book or making this movie and you go talk to people that you might want to collaborate with or interview or whatever it is, you're not coming to them with an idea. You're coming to them saying, I'm going to make this thing in an underlying context is I'm going to make this with or without you, but I love it if you were a part of it. And they want to be part of your train going forward, not just someone who has an idea, but has no real idea of what the work is going to, it's going to take to make it happen. So you really need to be the type of person who's not only writing, but taking that project across the finish line. That's fair. Um, that, and that's very, very good advice there, you know, especially when a lot of people uh, would feel set back. Um, and, and that leads to um, another question. What would how would aspiring screenwriters and writers 
get into the industry? Is that something where you need to sort of do your traditional four year or is it more or less a thing of, you know, just sort of building connection and networking or would that be a combination of both or are there other factors or an it factor that, you know, helps people kind of get, get their, how do I say, establish themselves in the industry? Yeah, I mean, no one has the same story. That's probably kind of the craziest part is like everyone's story is totally different, but it's some combination of like having an idea that you truly believe in and then showing up in a way where you're going to say, like, I'm the type of person who's going to get this made no matter what. Basically, I think that's really going to be the separation. And then it is more relationship based. Whenever you're trying to connect with someone who is more established than you, it's it goes back to kind of like dating in a degree you don't want to overwhelm them you don't want to just say hey here's my cold pitch do you want to kind of talk to them whenever you can you're you're offering help or advice or not picking your brain and that kind of thing you really need to be super specific in how you can work together um, so I think it's just something to kind of think about is like they want to see that you're a serious person and that you're bringing them a project to work on possibly or produce or write or, or whatever co-write whatever it is but you need to show that you put in a lot of time kind of with your head down in the dark working on something as opposed to just like, hey, I've got this idea. What do you think? That doesn't really go anywhere. Right. And so I guess last but not least, um, what would, would you say that it's harder to break into the industry nowadays, especially with sort of like this expectation of making the formulate blockbuster or do you feel now because there's more venues for more independent, you know, creations, do you feel like it's easier for people to get into the industry and break into it? It's definitely a combination. I think like the weird thing is after the strike, during the strike, there's only like 9,000 screenwriters. There's 200,000 dentists in America, as an example, to show you how drastically like different so it is, right? Yeah. Um, so I think it's like once you break in, it's easier to get promoted. A lot of people who might do right for one or two shows, all of a sudden they're getting promoted, you know, 10 years faster than it's happened before. But the breaking in is still like equally hard. I think it's really you have to have the kind of mindset that you're going to break in no matter what. Um, and really and really look, you know, everything in life is equally difficult. So if this is your obsession, if this is your dream, you're going to spend just as much time doing whatever other job you have. Why not spend that time? pursuing something that you know you really want to do like why don't just settle on things that are not really you or you don't really care about I think writers to be prolific like to kind of go back to the book you have to have that life perfect that life purpose you have to see yourself out there you have to be like thinking about who you can be your future self your ambitious self and pull yourself towards that that's really the only way to kind of survive all this uh you know, bad external opinions of you and critiques and then your own inner critic. The only way to kind of fight all those things off is to know exactly where you're going and be flexible in your approach to get there. This is very, very awesome advice. And I, I guess last but not least, uh, just to, you know, cap off this fantastic and absolutely spectacular interview, what would be, what would be the one one piece of advice that you would find vital that you would impart to yourself when you first began in this field. We talked a lot about logistics. I want to kind of think back about just like that person in the room kind of struggling just to start. You know, I did, I recently did this challenge with about a thousand people and the goal is just to be prolific, to write for 30 days. And I think the biggest thing people do where they make that mistake and talking to myself 10 years ago, or the reason I wrote this book 
is this, you have to separate the writer from the editor. If you're trying to edit as you write, you're never going to get anywhere. So you have to under, start to understand that there's multiple parts of your own mindset. There's a writing, there's a creative part set. There's a creative part that's just free and kind of going for it. There's a writing part that's kind of doing the work and, and going forward. There's an editor who wants to hold back and also protect your ego. And there's kind of a marketing angle a little bit later. And you really just have to understand how you can shift between all those facets of yourself and still fit under the umbrella of who you want to be and who you are. But if you don't do that, you're gonna, those four beings in yourself are going to keep colliding. And I think once you can start to separate those, you can actually be prolific or finish your first short story or your first book or your first script or whatever it is. And the weird thing is you're going to have to do that fight over and over again. So you might as well kind of get used to what that, what that like Stephen Presswell calls it the resistance. So I think once you figure out your ways to tackle that, uh, you're going to be better off. Well, this was absolutely, you know, very sound advice. You know, that's definitely advice. I think that would help so many out there, especially those who are struggling, those who aren't sure if they should go into that. And, you know, all over this interview has just been a really great insight into the screenwriting industry. And uh, we here at the Nuts and Bolts of Writing podcast, we thank you so much for reaching out to us. And we were absolutely honored to have you, Brock. You've really given us, you know, a very clear and fascinating perspective into screenwriting, but also, like you said, about creativity, productivity, and just, you know, understanding how to how to communicate and connect with the audience and we can't thank you enough thank you so much yeah it was great i really appreciate being here and uh, all your listeners too can go get my book and audiobook for free over at brockswinson.com so the book's ink by the barrel and it'll be free we're trying to give away a hundred thousand copies this year so go get your copy and, and tell your friends about it definitely we'll definitely be uh, promoting that on the podcast we definitely encourage all of our audience you know to check that out um, as well as follow you on all your social media and the work you do. And thank you again so much for this fantastic interview. Thank you. That was great. Thanks again. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Bye.